of you that may want to follow along and write some notes, there's an outline of the message that's in the back leaf of your bulletin. And, and uh, the reason that there are two titles to this message is I couldn't decide. So I just asked Chris when she was made, I said, put them both down. And the two titles today are From Rebuilding Walls to Rebuilding People and the second title is Lessons to Learn from Backsliders. Now, one of them is more palatable than the other. One of them is probably more truthful than the other. For those of you that are maybe joining us for the first time, I've been doing a series called Rebuilding Your Life, and we've been basing it on the truth of the book of Nehemiah for the past several weeks, and next week will be the concluding message to this series when we talk about revival inside the walls, and I can't think of a better way to wrap up a series than that. But as we get to this middle part of the book, we discover now that, as we said last week, the walls have been rebuilt, and now there is a consolidation taking place on the inside of the walls. And we get to chapter 7, and honestly, when you look at chapter 7, for those of you that read, how many of you try to read through the Bible every year in your devotions? A few of you. There are certain chapters in certain books, honestly, that when you look at them and you see a list of names, you're going, no. I really needed something today from God's Word to get me through. And oh, Genealogies, is that what you've got for me today? So I understand that there are parts and chapters in the, book that we, in the Bible that we see, and we don't think that there's any meat to them, and we're wondering perhaps why they were put there. Believe me, I was going to skip over this chapter, but as I did a little research, I discovered there's a reason some names are listed. And it kind of fits with the history at the very beginning of this series. And for those of you that haven't been a part of it, you can go to our website, and I know that we have many people that listen online every week. You can go to the website, and you can listen to the entire series. They're all there so that I don't have to repeat everything to bring it up. But you will discover that there's a lot of history involved in this. In the book of Ezra, is written at the same time. In fact, in some Old Testament manuscripts, Nehemiah and Ezra are one book. And it's covered over the entire period of time that Esther was written as well. So when you read about Queen Esther, you're reading about a time where this was all together in this, just so that you have that sense. And I understand that it's become the Memorial Day weekend. It's a time when we honor the veterans who paid an ultimate price for our freedom. And, and I was disappointed this week to see that ISIS has now reclaimed the city of Ramadi. I listened to the story of a mother who was the mother of the very first Navy SEAL who died in Ramadi many years ago. His name was Mark Allen Lee. And I watched as the images of those black ISIS flags were lifted over areas that I knew that we had spent a great deal of human life trying to set them free. And as they were interviewing the mother of this Navy SEAL, she said it was gut-wrenching to me. Gut-wrenching to see those flags go up over a place that I knew my son and many of his friends had given their life so that we could set them free. She said after he had been killed there, she had taken a trip some time ago to see where he had died. And while she was there, they awarded her a silver star in her son's honor. And I know that this mother, as well as other mothers and wives and dads and brothers and sisters who have had loved ones die in places where victory is no longer evident, have to be feeling that the lives of their loved ones are viewed as less than worthwhile. Have you ever struggled with the feelings in your life that you are not worthwhile? 
I think we probably all have felt that way at times, and I know that I do, and life goes by so quickly, and I often think, what am I accomplishing in my life that really matters? What can I do to spend my life so that I can count for something worthwhile? And the correct answer to that is that you will spend your life seeking the face of God and asking Him to allow you to be led according to His purposes, then your life will count for something. And your life will count for God, and that's all that really matters. It won't count just for this lifetime, but it will count for eternity. Believe it or not, Nehemiah chapter 7 answers some of those important questions about what does life count for? It's one of those chapters that make you wonder as you look at it, why did God not only put it in the Bible once, but if you will also look at Ezra chapter 2, the exact same list is listed there. So you have these names, this chapter that you would normally look at and skip right over, not just once listed, but it's listed twice. So it must be important. It's amazing to me that even the deadest portions of the Word of God can have something life-giving to them. How many, of them. how many of you know that different people can look at a list of names and feel differently about them? I recognized this when I was with my father-in-law the very first time that we went and saw the black wall of the Vietnam War Memorial. And I stood there as he was going through a book of where different names are and if you would know his testimony, God spared him, pulled him out of a company at the last minute for something else, and his whole company went, and they all lost their lives. And he has many times wondered why. He didn't know at that time God was going to call him into the ministry and spare his life. But I remember standing there at that wall, and I saw all these names that meant nothing to me because I had no emotional connection to them and didn't know them. But I, I looked at him as he stood there, and he couldn't even begin to walk on the sidewalk as he stood there, and tears began to stream down his face. I looked at other veterans that stood there. Many of them had their hands on a particular part of the wall and their, their heads bowed and eyes closed and some of them were tears. Different people were leaving gifts. And I began to recognize that a list of names means different things to different people. And so as we approach this passage of Scripture and we look and we see there's this list of names, I want you to understand that the Spirit had a specific reason for putting them there. And that there are things that we can learn as a result of it. Now, I promise you, I'm not reading this entire chapter today. Number one, I couldn't pronounce most of the names, and I'm not going to embarrass myself too often in front of you. But I'm going to ask that you would turn to chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, and at least let me read these verses to you. Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 4 through 7 said, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return, and this is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity and exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel. I'm stopping there. Zerubbabel may be the last name that I can pronounce out of that group. What we see here is that 
following this verse, there is hundreds of names given. The list is lengthy. It includes, as you look through it, and we'll get into what some of those names mean, but it includes uh, names such as the men of Anathoth in verse 27. It says priests come back and Levites come back in verse 43. The singers come back, temple servants and descendants of the servants of Solomon and some people who couldn't even prove their genealogy came back and were not allowed into that city because they couldn't prove that they were Jewish. It tells us that the people of Judah came back. And in verse 63, the priests came back. And then in Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 66 through 69, we read these words. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides... There's 7,337 men servants and maid servants. They also had 240 men, 245 men and women singers. That's quite a worship team. There were 736 horses. See, horses must be important because they're counted too. You'll notice there's no cats in this list, but that's beside the point. 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's quite a parade. This is a roster. The whole chapter is a roster of people who are the sons and daughters of backsliders. A whole roster of what is left of the people of God after they disobeyed Him and wandered away. Now, I grew up in a, in a place and a time where the term backslider was something heard often. How many of you know what that term means, backslider? Some of you have heard it before. The term backslider is used in the Bible. You'll hear it a lot, especially if you read Jeremiah. It simply indicates a people who at one time that were serving God, but literally chose no longer to serve God, and so they backslid away from their faith. term backsliders. It's an apt description of the whole children of Israel conglomerate as they go into exile. They chose not to follow God. They chose to backslide. And so we have this image of what is left after the exile of these people coming back uh, into Jerusalem because their ancestors chose not to walk with God. And before the children of Israel and especially the southern part of Judah and Benjamin were led away into captivity, the prophets continually warned them. As you read through the prophets, you'll notice that the prophets are always telling the people of God, don't wander away from God. Don't leave the protection of the house of the Lord. Don't wander away from the statute. Be obedient to God. Does that not sound like parents? Telling their kids, we know what lays out there and it's not what you think. Stay on the path. The prophet's message continually. And the children of Israel, listening to the prophets, continually telling them and warning them, don't leave the presence of God looked at the prophets and said, we'll do what we want because we know what's best. Boy, that's a great description of our world in many places today. So Babylon captured them. But in the mercy of God, a group of people who we read about in chapter 7 returned to the land. And this is what Nehemiah has to say about them. What's, what's puzzling as you read Nehemiah, you might think that 
when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, that the list that he was reading from are the people that were actually there then. But it's not. As you look at the verses we read, it said he took a record, and the record that he took was 93 years old. It was the people that had come with Zerubbabel when they first rebuilt the temple 70 years before Nehemiah had ever got there. And so as he's digging through, this is the old records. Now, I have a friend of mine in my neighborhood. Alex came to me a couple of weeks ago, and he had bought an old, old family Bible. And we opened it up on my table, and we're looking through, and the how many of you, you may still have some of these. It used to be that the family Bible that was in the middle of the table had all the records of the family. Some of you still have those old things. And we were looking through this, and there were dates back to the late 1700s. that it went. I was fascinated by the record, the genealogy of the family that was written in the Bible. Now, today we have so many Bibles, we wouldn't know which one to look in for the genealogy. We have it in other places. But Nehemiah begins to list from this old record of the people that were coming back. And one of the principles that we can get from learning about these who came back is this point number one. Turning away from God is going to wreak havoc on your family. If you turn away from God, it will wreak havoc on your family. The people who were listed in Nehemiah 7 come from the parents of those that are described in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 18. And let me just reflect what happened to this whole company when they walked away from God. It said, The Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people, on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was roused against his people and there was no remedy. I don't know that there's anything sadder written in the Bible than that. That the people who are the children of God could ignore him, ignore the pastors, ignore the prophets, ignore the teaching, and go their own way to the point where God says, then fine, you want to go that way, I'll let you go that way, and I'll let you suffer the consequences for it. Because there's no remedy for your behavior anymore. It says he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, spared neither the young man nor the young woman, the old man or the aged. God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because they were a backslidden people. The first result of backsliding that occurs a century and a half before Nehemiah was that it brought about lost families. I want you to know something. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have in America today. I'm thankful that I don't have to run my notes by some government official to make sure that it's okay for me to preach them. I don't know how long that will last, and frankly, I'm a little bit worried about where our country is going, but I'm thankful for the freedoms I have today. But if America continues to turn its back against the ways of God, if we continue to turn our back against the precepts of God, if our families continue to tell God, it doesn't matter what your word says, I'm going to go my own way, we're going to lose more and more families, and we already are seeing the fabric of America change as a result of the changing family structure we have. We're repeating the very same thing that the children of Israel did generations ago. This is a picture in the New Testament of the reality of the day in which we live. You turn your back on God, one of the first things that's going to happen is families are going to suffer. The next thing that happened to these who turned astray against God is the fact that they lost their spiritual resources. Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 18, it said, 
carried to Babylon all the articles of the temple, both large and small, and the treasury of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the kings and officials. These were all the instruments used in worship. I love this church. I love this sanctuary. I love our new chairs. I love the new carpet. I love the fact that some of you sleep so much easier now in here. But this is not a common hall. This is unlike any other building in the whole community because this is a place where the Holy Spirit comes to meet with His people. This is a place where God begins to dive into our lives and said, if you'll open your heart to me, I will begin to draw you to myself and I will begin to heal you. I'll begin to mend you. I'll forgive you. I'll set you on the right path and I'll change your life and I'll change your eternity. It would break my heart to see churches across America lose everything that they've got. But that's exactly what happened. Because they turned their back on God. They lost the place and the presence and the worship of the Lord. They lost the place where they could pray and read His Word, and they lost their faith. Lastly, the backsliders lost the temple itself. The place where ministry and worship occurred was gone. The Babylonians set fire to God's temple, broke down the walls of Jerusalem. As I begin to think about that, and you begin to personalize what the Scripture says here, what, what he's talking about is there are people... And for those of you that have attended this church any length of time, you know of people. You've seen them. Those that came here had an experience with God, maybe served here alongside of you, that for some reason let the voices of the outside, let the voices of the world overcome the voice of God, and they begin to wander back to the way they came. And we see people that one time had an experience with God, but the temple of worship within them, the place of worship has been burned because of their disobedience. And they've wandered out into the wilderness, and I want you to know, through all of the years of ministry, I have yet to meet one person who, having known Christ with all of their heart and then wandered away, ever said at the end of their life, Boy, I made a great decision there. Not heard it once. And I recognize today, as we talk about the havoc of a life that has lived outside the boundaries of God's Word, that I'm, I'm speaking to the people who are in church today. So maybe this doesn't apply to you directly, but it applies to you to pray. It applies to you in the aspect of you know people who are living outside God's Word. And it applies to you as a warning not to become careless in the way that you walk. The second principle that arises from backsliding is that the Lord does not give up on the backslider. The Lord does not give up on the backslider. This is the incredible nature of God. This, by the way, directly contradicts our emotions, which are telling us that if we've turned our back on the Lord, He's turned His back on us. And the reason we know this is because whenever we live in such a way that displeases the Lord and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the first place people don't want to come is into the presence of the Lord. Because the enemy begins to whisper in your ear, oh, you've made God mad. He doesn't love you anymore. He's not happy with you. You've sinned. He's kicked you out of the family. And you need to run. But I want you to know something. God continues to chase after you. He does not give up on you. And if you're here today and you say, but my life is a life of, I've blown it again and again. I want you to know something. There is a master that can change you. And he will draw you back because he continues to pursue those who have turned their back on him. Hosea writes 
to people when they're in the process of backsliding before they've been carried away into captivity. And he indicates that God is so married to his unfaithful people and Hosea's own life was used as a model of that. And in spite of going away from his own people, God declares to the lips of Hosea, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I surrender you, O Ephraim? In other words, the Lord is saying, I love you so much. We sang about this morning. I love you so much that even when you turn your back on me, I'm not willing to give you up. I'm not willing to turn my back on you. Because I am a God that pursues to the very end. And if God had given up, there would be no Nehemiah chapter 7 with a list of names. But they're there because God would not give up on His people when they had given up on Him. It's an indication that God remains faithful even when His people are unfaithful to Him. Nehemiah 7 indicates the faithfulness of God as He gives a list of people who He finally reached in grace. And I think it's deliberate on the part of both Ezra and Nehemiah to remind us in verse 27 that among the people that came back, and this again, if you're just reading through names and you don't know any of the history of it, sometimes you run by them, but there's this, this particular passage in verse 27. Some that came back were from the captivity of Anathoth. Now, we've mentioned that a little earlier, and let me tell you why that's important. If any of you are, are, are studiers of the Old Testament prophets, how many of you have ever heard of Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a strange man. If you read his book, you'll notice it's a strange prophet's writing. He was a man of sorrows, it was described. And Jeremiah had this lifelong call, and I I thank God that he didn't call me to this kind of ministry. But Jeremiah's call stretched over decades and decades, and he preached one message, and this was his message, because he was preaching to a people that were turning their back on God. And he was going around preaching, just surrender to the enemy. Just just surrender to the enemy because you guys are so stinking lousy in your ability to follow God that there's no hope for you. So just surrender because you're going to go there anyway. You're going to be a captive people. And so his whole message was just looking at people saying, you're rotten Christians. You're rotten followers of God. So just surrender to the enemy. I was trying to think of what that might look like today. And his message would be just about as popular as if we had somebody that suddenly declared that they were going to run for the presidency in this next term, and this was their platform. I'm running for office today on the platform that God is going to judge America for its sins. And rather than putting up any resistance, let's just let God's judgment come early, and let's surrender to ISIS right now. Just avoid the fight. Just surrender because it's coming with the way you're acting. And then we'll let ISIS decide who are the real followers of Christ and who are just faking. Chances are that individual's not going to get elected. But that was the message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah came from Anathoth. The people in his own town didn't like him. In fact, they had tried to kill him on different occasions. But Jeremiah did something that's really, really strange that adds into this story of the list of names. His country was just about to be taken over. Finally, all the prophecies that he had given were about to come true. And when this foreign power came in and was about to take over, you would think that when a foreign power is about to come in, that real estate prices would, would just drop. It wouldn't be a good time to start investing in real estate when you know, I'm going to buy land, somebody else is going to come in and take it, and I may never get to see it again. Jeremiah went and bought land during that time. 
He wouldn't know that it would be a hundred years later before any of his family would ever be able to have it. But he buys a piece of property at Anathoth at the very worst possible time. Not only was he an unpopular, an unpopular prophet, he was a poor businessman. But he was working under the hand of God. And when the devastation is over, he's looking at them saying, I just want you to know because of the way you live, you're going to face this judgment. You're going to face this of God. But when this is over, some of you are coming back. And when you come back, I bought land for my family so that God can begin to restore. And a hundred years before his family would possess it, he bought land. And Nehemiah 7 says, the men of Anathoth came back. The very village which had been the most dead set against their hometown prophet's message, in the mercy of God, they get brought back because God never stops chasing the backslider. God is also in Nehemiah 7 showing us the great grace and showing us the fact that He doesn't give up. He continues His purpose of redemption even when it seems unlikely. There are some of you that have some unsaved friends and unsaved relatives that you have quit praying for because you have put them on the impossible list. I want you to know something. God does not have an impossible to reach list. Nobody's on it. The Bible tells us that He is not willing that any should perish. His grace is available to all of them. So don't stop praying. If God can bring the men of Anathoth back, He can do anything with your family. Because He never stops pursuing. Thirdly, backsliding has consequences. Even though God has not given up on us, there are consequences to turning your back on Him. There will be things that you will face as a result of your sin. And as a result of you telling God in whatever area of your life it may be that I'm going to do things my way because I think I can take care of myself better than you can. And whether you are obedient in a bunch of areas and you leave one or two that you're not, I want you to know there will be consequences to disobedience. The example of the losses here are enormous. First of all, there's losses in population as a result of the children of Israel turning their back on God. The Scripture tells us on this roster that there are 42,360 people that come back. Let me compare that number to the number of people before the fall. In David's census, which is the high point of Israel's history, there were 1.3 million men alone. 2 Samuel chapter 24, 9 tells us that. Now the population, because of backsliding, has gone all the way down from 1.3 million men to 42,360. I want you to know something. You turn your back on God, there are consequences. Some people will lose their life before they have a chance at grace again. The Levites in David's time, according to 1 Chronicles 23, numbered 38,000. In other words, there were 38,000 people to minister in the temple. Now there are a total of Levites that are made up of the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the singers, and they've dropped from 38,000 to 4,649. In David's time in 1 Chronicles 23, there were 4,000 worship leaders. Can you imagine a choir of 4,000 people leading a church in worship on the Lord's Day? Oh, how magnificent it sounded. 4,000. The number that comes back is 148. In David's time, there were 4,000 gatekeepers. Now there's 138. 
It's been a tremendous toll on the life of the people of God because they chose not to obey. And even though the walls have been rebuilt and there's protection and the temple is coming back, this is what the result of turning your back on God is. There's consequences. There's also not only been a loss of a great number of people and lives, but there's been a loss of huge resources. The inventory of what the exiles brought back from Babylon is this. They came back with 736 horses. Now, that's a pretty good ranch. Until you begin to realize that in Solomon's time, Solomon alone, by himself, owned 12,000 horses. Here's the whole company. that they all come back? And the whole pool for the horses is 736. They had 435 camels among them. Job, it tells us, at one time had 6,000 camels by himself in one day. And then he captured a tribe and ended up with 50,000 more camels. And so we look at 435 and begin to realize, what a loss. 6,720 donkeys. Now, I, I, I laughed when I read that because I can only imagine what it sounded like near the donkey barn in the morning. That's a lot of donkeys, you think, until you realize that Israel, when they, in one war, captured 61,000 donkeys when it was getting ready to enter in the land in Numbers 31. Today, we would look at that, and to put that in terms we would understand, it would be Chevys and Toyotas and Hondas and Fords and Harley Davidsons for you motorcycle We went from dealerships full and then they came back, they came back in some old dilapidated things and there was only a few cars left for a whole group of people because of the resources that were lost. But perhaps I find it most interesting is the decrease in the value of the temple from before the people disobeyed until after. If you add the totals in verses 70 and 71 and 72, it comes to 41,000 drachmas of gold for the temple, which if you were to add that up today would come to 769 pounds of gold worth $14,700,000. And you say, that's no little amount. I could probably live on that. But let's compare it to what the people of God had before they turned their back on him. David, at one point, had collected for gold uh, for, for the temple gold that weighed 3,750 tons. And that's in 1 Chronicles 22. That amounts to David having raised for the temple $144 billion on the current market value of gold. Solomon's salary is that he received 25 tons of gold a year simply as a tribute. That would be an annual income today of almost a billion dollars a year. We could probably live on that too. All of us together could probably live well on that together. When the Queen of Sheba came, and for those of you who know your Bible, she came to visit Solomon, and when she came, she brought a gift. Her gift was 4.5 tons of gold, or $173 million in current value, that she brought and so now we see the, the exiled people, the sons and daughters of the backsliders that are coming back to a restored wall, a city that's so big that they have to go into it and there's vast amounts of room in there to rebuild it. And here's what they come back with, 769 pounds to rebuild the temple and everything within it. They don't even have a half of a ton left. And as we look at this, I want you to understand that the Scripture is saying this to us. If you choose to leave the Lord, if you choose to wander away from God, it will cost you in every area of your life. 
It will cost you in your family. It will cost you in resources. It will cost you in money. Because the enemy comes and says that there's more something out there for you. But I want you to know it will cost you in every area. We've seen the picture of it in Nehemiah chapter 7. The whole purpose of the registration, the genealogy, is to look at what was left to repopulate after a people turned their back on God. I want you to know something. There is, a, there is a palace being built in heaven right now. Some say it's each of us have a mansion. Some say it's going to be one huge place and each of us have a room. All I know is that it will be the only place in your life that you will ever move into and you will never want to change. You will never have a mortgage. There's never going to be a bad day. We won't be walking around looking at each other going, Hey, how are you doing today? Because we'll already know the answer. It's going to cut down on a lot of conversation. The Scripture indicates to us that our Father is in heaven right now and He has a team of workers that are building palaces for us that when we, the exiles, come back and He begins to lift us from this earth through either death or the rapture, that we will enter into a place and He says, this is a huge city. I want you to go in and enjoy it all. It's all there for you and I have restored everything to you that the enemy sought to take away. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Lastly, the Lord's remarkable in His mercy. 300 years before Nehemiah, there's a remarkable scriptural example of God's long-suffering and patience and His mercy. It was then that the whole nation first began to fall into captivity, and we find that the Assyrians, they come down from the north, and they invaded the northern tribes. Uh, the first two tribes that were taken over were, were Zebulun and Naphtali. The two tribes that lay right on the northern border that were the first to fall. In the next century and a half, the rest of the, the other ten tribes would all fall. And the prophet Isaiah, who prophesies before the captivity ever took place, says this about the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor he will honor. Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadows of the death, light has dawned. I don't know about you, but that kind of describes my salvation experience. I was walking in darkness and God's mercy shined upon me and I was suddenly able to see things I'd never seen before and I got to run to His mercy and experience everything that I'd ever hoped for. By meeting Jesus. 800 years before Jesus came, this prophecy was given in Isaiah. If you also look now in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, 800 years later, it says this. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said of the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The point is this. The very first place to be defeated was the very first place to see the glory of the Lord. And as you begin to apply this in our lives, one of the greatest things about the redemption of the Lord is that 
He doesn't leave anything unredeemed when He comes. The very first places that, that seem to fall under the power of the enemy when you were yielding to one that you didn't know are the very first places that the Lord wants to come and restore within your life. And there are those that have talked to me through the years and say, you know, Pastor, I've done this and I've done that and there's no way that God can ever accept me. I want you to know the Lord will run to the places that you're most afraid of first and He will restore those first because He wants you to know nothing is incapable of being changed by His power. He'll pour His light on all of those areas that you you were so afraid of and so ashamed of and He pours out His mercy and He says, I know it all and I love you anyway. I've come to redeem you come to redeem you. God's mercy and His grace and His love are reflected continually to us in every aspect of Scripture and in this little hidden part of Scripture in a list of names that we would normally run right over because we cannot pronounce them. There are nuggets of truth as God says, I want you to know that those that came back are the sons and daughters of backsliders, but I never stopped chasing them and I never did stop giving to them everything that they need and I will restore them because they came home. So today, worship team, if you'd prepare yourselves, what's the Lord saying to you through His Word today? I believe God has sent His Word today for some of you because you're in a position of having turned away from God. Maybe you haven't been following the Lord. Maybe you've been doing other things. Maybe you've been saying, Lord, I know that you want me to do this, but I want to do this and I'd rather follow my own way. And today you find yourself in church and you've been reminded by the Holy Spirit that obedience to the Lord is what brings contentment and will help your soul to prosper. For some of you, it's a word of warning to remind you that there are consequences to ignoring God's Word. There are consequences to doing it in your own way. And for some of you, it's an opportunity for you to come back and renew your vows. I've often said that, that coming to the Lord and giving your life to the Lord is like, is like giving your vows at a wedding. These are not just promises that you're making. This is covenant. There's something far, far deeper about the covenant vows that we have. And and when we come and surrender ourselves to God, these are covenant vows that we make to the Lord. Some of you have ignored the covenant vows that you have made to the Lord, and He's reminding you through His Word today. And He says this in Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to Me, all who are weary, all who are burdened. I'll give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is 